How's it going, folks? This is your host, Corey Grip for the Get a Grip podcast. It's been a few weeks, but I wanted to break down everything that's kind of been going on in the sports world. We got some NFL free agency quarterback contracts, free agency moves, winners and losers. I'm going to have my updated NBA playoffs for the uh, playoff predictions for the second half of the season with some award predictions. Uh, I'll talk a little March Madness as it is that time of the year. And uh, let's get it started. All right. So first, I wanted to start off with Dak Prescott. Um, to me, Dak has always been he's, – he's a top 10 to 12 quarterback. Um, I don't think you can not have him up there. Uh, as far as ability, he wins a lot of games. He's won the second most games behind Tom Brady since he's come into the league. That's not a uh, – there's no uh, – that's not a fluke. That's for real. He signed a four-year, $160 million extension last week. $66 million of that was at uh, signing. And this year he's only uh, having $22 million uh, against the cap. And with that, Dallas has done nothing within a free agency, and that cap hit's going to increase to $33 million in 2022, $44 million in 2023, and then $47 million in 2024. Uh, Dak definitely earned this contract with how he's produced on the field to a large extent based on the market, but he's not a top five quarterback. At best, he's bottom of the top 10 in that top 12 range. You can't have a top 12 list of quarterbacks without Dak Prescott being in there, but here's some, here, here are some numbers that to me, I just, I've never really been a fan of Dak Prescott. And there's one quarterback in this league that he's a slightly better version of that people aren't talking about enough, but I'll start with this. Since 2016, when the Cowboys went 13-3, Dak Prescott is 7-19 against playoff teams or teams with winning records from, the, from 2017 to 2020. I'll repeat that again. He's 7-19 against teams with winning records or teams that made the playoffs from 2017 to 2020. And I'll break it down even further. In 2017, without Ezekiel Elliott, Ezekiel Elliott missed a do- half a dozen to seven games. Um due to a uh, personal conduct uh, suspension with the league. Um, and uh, in that season, they, in that five-game, six-game stretch over the middle of the season against winning record slash playoff teams, Dak was 0-3 with five interceptions, no offensive touchdowns, and 22 total points. That came against the Falcons, Eagles, and then the Chargers on Thanksgiving. 28 in 2018, he had eight interceptions on the year. All of them came against teams with winning records or teams that made the playoffs. Dak is really good, but I, I think there's this misperception of Dak's clutch. Dak delivers in big moments. Dak always seems to struggle against good teams, teams with winning records, um, and he puts up a lot of empty calorie stats where his team, the Cowboys, fall behind early. They have to start throwing the ball a lot more. And Dak has all these great numbers, but a lot of losses and a lot of those yards come when the game is clearly in hand for the opposition. Again, he's a really, really good player, and he's got the intangibles. I think he got this money because of the intangibles and because he's a really good quarterback, but he's not a great quarterback. His leadership is incredible. We saw what, we saw what Dak Prescott means to this team after this past year. Dak goes down uh, against the Giants, and then from then on, the Cowboys absolutely just fell apart. When he went down against the Giants in week five, they were two and three. They ended up rallying to win that game behind Andy Dalton. But they ended up going on. They ended up losing 
seven of their next eight games. And while they did win three of their last four, they beat the Bengals without Joe Burrow. They beat the San Francisco 49ers that were basically COVID, COVID struck and injury riddled the whole season. And they beat an Eagles team that had basically quit playing with Jalen Hurts instead of Carson Wentz. To me, that's not a very impressive season for the Cowboys, given all the expensive players and talented players they have on that team with Demarcus Lawrence and Amari Cooper and Ezekiel Elliott and a, a, still a talented offensive line. But we saw what he meant when he went down. He's great at the podium, and he always does and says the right thing. But Dak, to me, is a slightly better version of Kirk Cousins. Everyone bangs on Kirk Cousins for not winning big games, for putting up a lot of stats and not winning and not going to the playoffs. But let's look at some numbers here. Since 2016, Kirk Cousins, his completion percentage, 67.6%. Dax, 66%. Kirk Cousins has over 21,000 passing yards. Dak has over 17,000. Now, keep in mind, all of these numbers would be a little bit different had Dak played the full 2020 season or only missed a couple games. But you get the idea. The numbers are going to be similar um, even if Dak had played out most of the 2020 season, they're going to be almost identical numbers, very similar numbers. Um, let's let's go back. Dak Prescott, 40 interceptions since 2016. Kirk Cousins with 54. Kirk Cousins has a 106.64 quarterback rating. Dak has a 97. Kirk Cousins has 143 passing touchdowns. Dak has 106. Again, these would be numbers would be a little bit closer if not for the injury. And the playoff records, both are one and two. Dak has one more division title than Kirk Cousins with two, and Cousins has one. And, and everyone bangs on Kirk Cousins. But if you really look at the numbers, Dak Prescott is not that much better than Kirk Cousins. He's slightly better, if not maybe even about the same. These are guys, and I've been saying, I put, I put five quarterbacks in the same little class every year. And I think a lot of people overanalyze these things a lot. Okay, I look at... Dak Prescott, Matt Stafford, Alex Smith, Kirk Cousins, Andy Dalton when he was starting for the Bengals. I look at all of these guys the same, okay? They put up a lot of numbers. They win games. They'll win a division title every couple years. They'll get you to the playoffs every couple years. But once you get there, you're lucky if you win a game. They're not Super Bowl caliber quarterbacks. They're all very talented, and they all have very good leadership qualities and good, are good in the locker room and are good veterans. And like I said, they're going to win you a lot of games, but they don't win you the big games. Have you ever noticed that Alex Smith could never beat the Patriots in the playoffs, even with Andy Reid? Did you ever notice that Matt Stafford never won a division title, 0-3 in the playoffs, and never really competed a lot with Aaron Rodgers? Did you ever notice that Kirk Cousins in his biggest games in primetime, Monday night, Sunday night, in Washington and Minnesota, he comes out and lays fat eggs? He doesn't play well? You ever notice that Dak Prescott struggles against playoff teams, as I've already noted? I mean, these are, listen, these are the same quarterbacks. What, some might be slightly better than the other as far as arm talent, mobility, leadership qualities at the line of scrimmage, checking out of plays, but they're all in the same class. And as good as Dak Prescott is, he is way overpaid and is going to really tie up Dallas in the future with his, with his long and expensive contract. Now I'm going to shift to my quarterback, Big Ben. Been a Steelers fan my whole, almost my whole life. He restructured his contract from a $35 million cap hit to 25, 
He added a bunch of voidable years on the back end to his contract to spread out the signing bonus. Though the Steelers will have $10 million in dead cap for the 2022 season. So essentially, it's a one-year deal. To me, Big Ben, this is his last year. Um, I thought he did some really good things last year. I think he proved a lot of people wrong. Many people believe that Big Ben wouldn't have been able to play a full season, let alone uh, play as well as he did the first half. But we saw what the Steelers were from the postponed Thanksgiving night game against the Ravens on. A team that couldn't run the football, a team that's offensive line really struggled to move and dominate in the, in the trenches, a team that really didn't have a deep play action, deep play offense in the passing game. They went 1-5 down the stretch with losses to the Washington football team, the Buffalo Bills, Cincinnati Bengals, and the Cleveland Browns twice. And in all, and in all five of those losses, they were physically pushed around in the trenches, couldn't run the football, and really didn't have much of a downfield passing game. And frankly, the playoff loss to the Browns was an embarrassment. That might have been one of the worst losses in franchise history. I knew as soon as Marquise Pouncey snapped the ball over Big Ben's head and it was recovered for a touchdown by Cleveland that the game was over. They threw the ball 68 times in that game. That just can't happen. Whatever happened to the Steelers team that ran the football? We saw what Tampa did to their on their way to a Super Bowl title. They had a balanced approach. Leonard Fournette really did a great job running the football. He was fresh for the playoffs, didn't have a ton of carries in the regular season. And against the Chiefs and the Packers and the Saints and, the, and Washington, he did a lot of great things in the run game and in the passing game. Brady did a lot of good things, didn't make a lot of mistakes, and the defense by Tampa Bay forced turnovers, got a lot of sacks, and constant pressure on Taylor Heineke, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, and Patrick Mahomes. That's what we saw. So even in today's NFL, what teams airing it out more than ever and run games kind of dissipating, you still have to run the football and play good defense to win in the biggest moments. Uh, there's a lot of change for the Steelers team. Uh, it's not going to look anything like what they've had over the last few years. They lost three offensive linemen. Uh, Marquise Pouncey retired. Uh, Matt Feeler signed with the Chargers as a free agent. Andre Villanueva is a current free agent, but with the Steelers, limited cap space will likely not be back. Juju Smith-Schuster could return, may possibly on a cheaper deal, but most likely will not. James Conner will likely not return. Vance McDonald retired. Bud Dupree signed with the Titans. Tyson Alu-Alu an important nose tackle for their defensive front, signed with Jacksonville, and Mike Hilton signed with the Bengals. They cut Vince Williams, a starter for the last four to five years. This is going to look like a completely different team. I will say the Steelers will always be in the playoff conversation as long as Mike Tomlin and Big Ben are together. Uh, Mike Tomlin's never had a losing season. His worst record as a head coach since 2007 is 8-8. Eight and eight. So they're going to be in the conversation. But to me at this point, this team is at best – a wild card team, maybe win a playoff game. But, you know, I, I frankly believe that Big Ben should have retired and moved on. You know, this is a team that needs to, you know, start the transition period now. And uh, with the Steelers not having a good draft pick this year to go up and get a quarterback, and we know the Steelers don't like to trade up in the draft, it's going to be awfully hard for them to find a quarterback in the first round. So they're going to have to see if they can find a guy in the mid to late rounds or possibly see if Dwayne Haskins can be their quarterback of the future after sitting and learning behind Big Ben next year. But they need to, they need to draft some young physical linemen. They need to go get a running back. I, I would like the Steelers to get Najee Harris out of Alabama, and they need to add a middle linebacker. If they can do that at minimum, I can be fine with what they do the rest of the draft, and I wouldn't be surprised if they also take a receiver. Let's go to Russell Wilson. Can we please stop with these rumors? 
All for, for the last three weeks, all I've been hearing is about, oh, Russell Wilson wants out. Oh, Russell Wilson's going to get traded. Yeah, maybe Russell Wilson was frustrated with the Seattle Seahawks, but he wasn't getting traded. The Bears had a really good offer on the table, and the deal wasn't even really close to getting done. Pete Carroll vetoed the trade. The Seahawks know what they have, and what they have is a top-five quarterback. And I will say Russell Wilson has struggled in the second half of seasons the last four years. But they're always going to be in the playoff chase. He's, he's only had one season below 10 wins since, he started at, since he's been starting quarterback for the Seahawks in 2012. He, his worst season was 9-7. He's constantly winning 11-12 to 12 games despite a bad offensive line, at times limited defense, declining defense since the days of the Legion of Boom. The, the Seahawks, this, this is just ridiculous. They weren't going to trade him at that price tag. I mean, they were going to have over $38 million in dead cap money if they he traded. He's the face of the franchise. They got to make this thing work. It's not every day that you stumble upon, you know, a franchise quarterback. Look at teams like the Dolphins and the Jets. And they've been looking for franchise quarterbacks for years. The Dolphins haven't had one since Dan Marino. The Jets really haven't had one since Joe Namath. For the longest time, the Bills didn't have one until Josh Allen had a great season this past year and since the days of Jim Kelly. There are a lot of teams that just can't figure out the quarterback position. Chicago really hasn't had one. Jay Cutler's been their best quarterback the last 30 years. Teams just It's not easy to figure out the quarterback position. Some teams are really good at it. Some teams are not. So for the Seahawks to even consider, I, obviously, yes, every player has got a price tag. No player is untouchable. Everyone has a price. But Russell Wilson can't be traded. He's a consensus top five quarterback. The O-line issues I'll dive into now. Part of that is due to Russell Wilson. I, I think sometimes Russell Wilson bails on the pocket. But I think a lot of that is it's in his head. He knows that this offensive line is not consistent in pass protection. That at the end of the day, he's going to have to bail the pocket to make plays happen for this team. This is who Russell Wilson is. He, he just he extends plays, he's a scrambler, but he's also he, he, but he's even better in a clean pocket and he's so he's got the most beautiful deep ball in the NFL. He's so accurate. But I think a lot of times what we see with Russell Wilson is he's pressing. He's pressing because he knows he doesn't he's not always going to have a clean pocket. He's pressing because he knows he's going to have to make something happen. And that's why I think Russell Wilson has a lot of turnovers against good teams. Because he's, he, in his mind, he knows that he's going to have to make something happen at the end of the day, that he can't rely on his inconsistent, below-average offensive line to give him the clean pocket that he needs to be successful. And that's why I think you see Russell Wilson bail early and scramble, because in the back of his mind, he knows that that's what it's going to have to take for them to make plays. And if he makes mistakes, sometimes it's going to hurt, but a lot of times he's going to make the great play. Um, the Seahawks, just they've not been a good drafting team for the last like five, six years. Since 2015, they've only had a handful of good draft picks that have turned into eventual pro bowlers or consistent starters. Frank Clark, Tyler Lockett, Jaron Reed, uh, Shaquille Griffin, uh, DK Metcalf, Chris Carson, punter Michael Dixon. But we've seen Frank Clark was traded to the Chiefs. Shaquille Griffin just signed with the Jags as a free agent. Chris Carson's a current free agent. This is just not a good team. And to me, I've been, I've been saying this for the last couple months. Pete Carroll, this could be his last year in Seattle. We've seen quarterbacks have, are continuing to grow with power in the NFL. And Pete Carroll has been underachieving with a top five quarterback. 
Yes, you can put some of the blame on Russ, but at the end of the day, Pete Carroll's got all the power. He's the one with all the power, even over GM John Schneider. He's the one making draft picks. He's the one deciding who gets traded. He's the guy signing guys. So at the end of the day, this is on Pete Carroll, and if that Rams game in the playoffs was any indication, they're a long ways away from being a true Super Bowl contender. Yes, this is, this is a playoff team, but they're not much of a playoff team outside of maybe one playoff win. I'm going to shift to Deshaun Watson. He's never going to play again for the Texans. I don't understand what the Texans are doing. Um, I know there are some civil lawsuits going on against Deshaun Watson at the moment, which could hurt his trade value, but the deadline's the draft. If the Texans go until the, after the draft and he's not traded, um, he's not going to play for them for the 2021 season. At the moment, it's best for the Texans to get maximum value. They can get a boatload of draft picks and maybe a couple starters for Deshaun Watson. He's, he's another guy. You're not, it's not every day that a top five to six quarterback is on the market um, when, he's in this, when he's in his prime. I mean, so to me, we've heard rumors that you know, the Dolphins and the Jets are, could, are possible uh, destinations, but now it's down to Denver and San Francisco. Those teams have to go get them. Denver makes a lot more sense. Uh, San Francisco's got a lot of big contracts. Uh, you know, they have Trent Williams. Jimmy Garoppolo, George Kittle's up for a big extension soon. Nick Bosa will be paid soon. They're paying Eric Armstead, D. Ford. Fred Warner will be up for an extension soon. So as, as great of a fit as he would be in San Francisco, the, cap, the money just will not add up as they will likely have to let go of a bunch of really good players in the, in the near future. But Denver makes a lot of sense. They always play strong defense in Denver. They got young playmakers in Jerry Judy, Noah Fant, K.J. Hamler. They got Melvin Gordon in the backfield. So they got some, they got some young pieces um, and a couple good offensive linemen, Garrett Bowles being one of them. Uh, so it, Denver's an interesting desk spot. But the Texans did this to themselves. It's not hard to communicate with the face of your franchise, especially with, when that's what they were saying. Uh, Deshaun Watson, I, I don't think anyone could have won with the Texans situation the last couple years. I mean, Bill O'Brien's been one of the worst coaches in recent memory. He's screwed with the team with bad coaching and bad personnel moves. Uh, the, own, uh, the owner, um, Cal McNair, the son of uh, the recently passed owner uh, of the Texans from a couple years ago, new management, they just keep messing up. They hired a head coach that's never been a coordinator in his 40 years of coaching in the league. He was the only guy that wanted the job, only guy that would have taken the job. Uh, trading Watson will allow both sides to start over. And with the, all the holes and the, the negative cap space that the Texans have, Starting over with a lot of draft picks may be the best move for them. They need to stop being stubborn and let Deshaun Watson go where he needs to go. I understand what this precedent could set for the future of the league with quarterbacks being able to force their way out. But I think a lot of times teams are going to treat their quarterbacks with honesty and respect. This was a complete mishandling by the Texans' ownership and management. A lot of times quarterbacks work with their front office, work with the owners, communicate well with them, just kind of tell them what, what they kind of feel and who, what they might need on both sides of the football. That's something the Texans promised to Sean Watson, and they didn't do it. Um, so this, to me, is, is the time for Houston to move them. They got about six, seven more weeks before um, this is really going to blow up in their face. Now I'm going to shift to... NFL free agency or offseason winners and losers. Let's start with the winners. The New England Patriots. I think it's a, I think it's kind of an easy one. A lot of people believe that the Patriots overspent for guys in free agency. And that, and that might be true, but a lot of times that what, that's what free agency is. You've got to overpay for guys that may not be worth the market value. But the Patriots added a lot of playmakers on both sides of the football. Bill Belichick had one of the worst offenses in the league last year. 
no playmakers at tight end, no playmake, no playmaking speed guys on the perimeter. And Cam Newton, as much as I, I'm not a fan of Cam Newton on the podium, in the locker room, I don't think he's the best accurate, best thrower or most accurate quarterback in the in the league. He had no chance to succeed. And I think that's why when Tom Brady went 12 and 4 with the same kind of guys. It made it even more impressive to his legacy. That might have been one of his best seasons given that he really didn't have anything around him. I think the Pats are trying to get back to their glory days with the two tight end sets with Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. Uh, John o. Smith and Hunter Henry are not those two guys. But John o. Smith is versatile. He's a really willing blocker. He can line up in the backfield. Bill Belichick likes his tight ends that can block. As we know, Rob Gronkowski is one of the best blocking tight ends. And Hunter Henry is an offensive weapon. and He's had some injury concerns. But when he's healthy, he's a top 10 offensive talent at tight at the tight end position. And uh, as we know, Cam Newton, his best years in his career came when he had Greg Olson with the Carolina Panthers as his go-to target. Um, and the Pats offense was lethal with that two tight end set just about 10 years ago. Uh, Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne uh, are better than what they had. Uh, Nelson Aguilar had a career year, 896 receiving yards, eight touchdowns, was a big play weapon for the Raiders. He averaged 18.7 yards per catch. Kendrick Bourne had 11 touchdowns, 12.9 yards a catch, and a run-heavy offense the last three years. He's a big, wide, physical wide receiver with the middle of the field. So now you add two tight ends that can work the middle of the field as well as a receiver and a guy that can take the top off the defense. I know these guys aren't great. Nelson Aguilar parlayed a great a career year, a one-year prove-it deal in Las Vegas, into a two-year deal with the Patriots. But the Bill Belichick has never been about – giving one wide receiver a ton of money. Remember, he traded for Randy Moss. He didn't sign Randy Moss. He kind of stumbled upon him, and we saw what Brady did with Randy Moss. Bill Belichick, I will say this about Bill Belichick. He is the best coach in NFL history at adjusting to his personnel and playing to their strengths. That's why I believe that these signings are all going to work because Bill Belichick plays to the strengths of his players. That's what we've seen. And we've also seen that Bill Belichick likes vets, guys that have been in the league for years. Uh, Matt Judon is another great example and he's never had 10 sacks, but he's versatile. He's got a lot of speed and he's good against the run. Bill Belichick will play to his strengths and I would not be surprised if Matt Judon has double digit sacks for the first time in his career uh, with Bill Belichick. And then Jalen Mills, a versatile corner, Patrick Chung retired. He can play corner, he can play safety. And they also traded for Trent Brown, who had his best year of his career during their last Super Bowl run in the, during the 2018-19 season. So all in all, I thought the Patriots made a lot of smart moves. They've uh, signed a lot of under-the-radar guys as well as smaller deals. They've done a really good job. And I would not be surprised if they're back in the playoffs this upcoming season, given the coaching and given the uh, talent injected into both sides of the football. Let's go to the Jets. I think they're a winner. Uh, the Jets are trying to start over. And, you know, to me, I like Robert Sala. He seems like a big culture guy. You know, I, I remember saying when Adam Gase was hired, I remember saying this is going to be a bomb. Because guess what? There's a reason when the Dolphins fire you, and the Dolphins have not been the most functional organization since Dan Marino retired. Now, I do think the Dolphins are doing a good job with Brian Flores. I think Brian Flores has them going in the right direction. He's developed a strong culture. Um, he's he's uh, established credibility. He's established a, you know, uh, a bar, expectations, a standard for the Dolphins. And so I think he's got them going in the right direction. But for the longest time, the Dolphins had a really bad track record of hiring head coaches. Adam Gase had a 20th ranked offense or worse when he was the offensive coordinator with the Chicago Bears. 
It was only because of his 2013 season with one of the best offensive record, uh, offensive seasons for a team in history with the 2013 Broncos. That got him instant credibility because Peyton Manning vouched for him and vouched for his character and his, and his IQ for the game. It was a bad hire. Robert Saul is a player's coach. He's got a lot of energy. He's young. He's, and, and his players in San Francisco vowed that they would run up through a, wall, a brick wall for him because they loved, he, they loved playing for him so much because he cared for his players. I thought Corey Davis was a really good signing for the Jets. The Jets didn't really have a vertical uh, guy for their passing offense last year. Uh, they let go of Robbie Anderson. I really felt like what after what I saw from Ro- Robbie Anderson last year with the Carolina Panthers, I thought he was a one-trick pony. But what I realized is that I think the Jets were underutilizing Robbie Anderson in the passing game because he was doing things last year with the Panthers that I never thought I I never thought he could do. Uh, so I think Corey Davis will add that add that over the top element to their offense again. He had over he had just under a thousand receiving yards and five touchdowns last year, averaged 15 yards per catch. His numbers are down for a few reasons. Okay, remember he was a top five pick coming out of Western Michigan in the 2017 draft. There was a reason why he was picked as high as he was. He played with a mobile quarterback in Marcus Mariota for the first two and a half seasons of his career, who's not known as a great passing quarterback. And then he, and then Ryan Tannehill became the starter mid-2019. The chemistry was not there, and the Titans really rode Derrick Henry to the AFC Championship game, and uh, Tannehill was more in sync with A.J. Brown. But what we saw last year was what made him a top-five pick, his ability to stretch the field. He was a big play machine after the catch, very good over the top. And that's something the Jets just haven't had. Um, they didn't have last year. Uh, assuming Jamison Crowder's still on the team, he can work the middle of the field. Uh, Mims and Davis can work over the top, work on the side sideline. Uh, so I thought that was a really good addition for the Jets. Carl Lawson, another guy. I think he's a. I think he's a grinder. He's been getting better every single year of his career. He had 44 quarterback pressures last year, which combines hurries, not quarterback knockdowns and sacks, and played a career high 68% of his defensive snaps. Now he's been getting better every single season, and the Jets are banking on his year-to-year improvement. He'll help the defensive front, which lacks uh, consistent playmakers, guys that can get pressure. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals, they're another winner. Added a lot of veterans that can really add experience and knowledge and leadership to the locker room. J.J. Watt, he's not what he used to be, but he still adds toughness and leadership to the locker room. He's still capable of a splash player too every Sunday, and he's and he's been, you know, and uh, as a team, the Cardinals were top five in sacks last year. That was with Chandler Jones missing half the season. Um, and they're getting him back from injury. This is a team on the rise. You know, I, I picked the Arizona Cardinals to make the playoffs last year. I was a little bit off. They just missed the playoffs. They would have been, they were the eighth seed last year in the NFC. Uh, Kyler Murray was clearly hurt down the stretch. Uh, they really had a tough time uh, creating big plays down the field. As, you know, and we also saw that Kyler Murray missed the win and possibly you're in. Um, against the Rams in week 17. But with a healthy Kyler Murray and with a better pass rush for J.J. Watt, and keep in mind, they traded for center Rodney Hudson. This is a huge upgrade for this offensive line um, that struggled at times last year in pass protection and to really um, create a momentum up front for the run game. He's a second-team All-Pro in 2019 and a three-time Pro Bowler. And A.J. Green, again, he may not be what he once was like J.J. Watt, but I think he checked out last year in Cincinnati um, I think he's finally healthy, and I think a change of scenery will give this uh, perimeter another weapon. And if he's anything close to what he once was, having A.J. Green, Christian Kirk, Hopkins, possibly Larry Fitzgerald if he comes back for one more season, 
um, will really give this offense a new look despite losing Kenyon Drake to the Raiders, but expect the Cardinals to go get a running back in the draft. Um, and their secondary is going to need some addressing after losing Pat Peterson to the Minnesota Vikings and Drake Kirkpatrick being a free agent. Uh, but this team's going in the right direction with some good moves. And the Bucks, this is easy. They brought the whole band back. They re-signed Shaq Barrett. They re-signed Levante David. Gronk, Suckup, the kicker, made a career-high 90% of his kicks last year, 28 of 31. They restructured Brady's contract, which allowed them to go help and re-sign Barrett and Levante David and Gronk and Suckup. They franchise tagged Chris Godwin, who signed it today. Now, it's still out onto Ndamukong Sue, Antonio Brown, and Leonard Fournette. To me, I think the Bucs are going to let Fournette walk and possibly bring in James White, who's been linked to Tampa, another ex-Brady teammate who's an excellent pass-catching back. But this team's got a lot of talent. In year two of this offense, Brady's going to be even better. And if, they, if teams were scared last year, no one expected them to win the Super Bowl last year. I, I kind of thought that the Bucs would win their division, make a deep playoff run. I thought it was possible, but I really didn't think they were going to do it. Now that they did it in year one, it's only good. I think they're, they're going to be hungry for another ring. Brady's a great leader, sets a standard. No, no teammates are going to celebrate too long. Brady's already back to work in the lab. I think the Bucs are going to push for another Super Bowl next year with, with a lot of the same team intact. Some losers. I already mentioned it, but the Steelers, they just lost a lot. Um, they lost a lot of talent on both sides of the football they're starting over in the trenches. Um, now, they did sign Zach Banner and B.J. Finney. It's not big names, but they will add depth to their offensive line. And they did re-sign Cam Sutton. Had to choose between him and Mike Hilton for their secondary versatile corner. They just didn't have a lot of ca salary cap space to really do anything major. Um, but this has been the Steelers' M.O. for years in free agency. Kind of, you know, keep their own within, draft well and develop. That's just kind of the Steelers' way. Saints, they were in salary cap hell. Just They didn't really have much they could do. Uh, they let go of a lot of starters from last year's team. They cut Jared Cook, offensive lineman Nick Easton, punter Thomas Morstead, Emmanuel Sanders, corner Janoris Jenkins, and tight end Josh Hill. Not to mention they lost Trey Hendrickson coming off a career-high 13 sacks. He signed with Cincinnati. Sheldon Rankins, who's been a constant starter for them for the last four years, was is a free agent. And they, uh, they lost Drew Brees to retirement. Now, they did franchise... Uh, stud safety Marcus Williams who can really do everything for them and they re-signed Jameis Winston to compete with Taysom Hill for the starting quarterback job but you know for you know with Tampa Bay basically re -bring, restocking their roster bringing everybody back and the Saints having to let go of a lot of guys including Drew Brees uh, the Saints certainly are losers given what's going on in Tampa uh, the Raiders I don't get it you know you you, you had the highest paid offensive line in the league. Really did a good job of paving the way for Josh Jacobs protecting Derek Carr. And they cut or traded four-fifths of their offensive line. They traded Gabe Jackson to Seattle, Rodney Hudson to Arizona, Trent Brown back to New England, and they cut Riggia Incognito. Not to mention, they cut Tyrell Williams and Marcus Joyner. Both disappointments, but not when they signed. And they let go of Nelson Aguilar. They did sign John Brown, who is essentially another Nelson Aguilar, but... They gave Unique and Dockway a lot of money, and he really hasn't. He really didn't do much last year with the Vikings and the Ravens, and he, you know he's made a lot of he made a lot of noise in Jacksonville for wanting a big contract and then holding out multiple times. And is he really a great locker room fit? He'll help their pass rush, but is he really worth the money? I'm not really sure what the Raiders were doing. Um, I think they're trying to give more resources to the defense, but you know Derek Carr is not a great quarterback under pressure and. You know, they just put him in a in a lose lose situation. To me, this kind of feels like 
this is a, a make it or break it year for Derek Carr. Offensively, they were good last year, but you know they kind of faltered down the stretch of the season. And uh, I mean, I know their defense wasn't great, and they're trying to address that side of the football. But you know, at the cost of your offense and an offensive-driven league, that might not be the smartest idea by John Gruden. And lastly, the Green Bay Packers—they re-signed Aaron Jones to a discount. They didn't do anything. Uh, I know the Packers are struggling with cap space right now, but. You let go of an all-pro center in Corey Lindsley. You cut one of your starting tackles, Rick Wagner. Robert Tunyon's a restricted free agent. They let go of Jamal Williams. Not a surprise, given that they have A.J. Dillon and just re-signed Aaron Jones. But they just haven't really been aggressive. Um, they didn't really go after Will Fuller, who many thought could go there. He signed with the Dolphins on a one-year deal. You, you're, not, you're telling me they couldn't create a little bit of cap space to go get Will Fuller, given what he signed for with the Dolphins? Um... Man, all I, know, all I know is the Packers better go get a wide receiver in the draft uh, or two. Um, now is the time to add a proven playmaker. Uh, they, got, they have to. Um, you know, this team's in win-now mode. Um, as long as they got Aaron Rodgers, you know, they're going to have a chance to win every game and make deep playoff runs, but they're going to have to give him more help. As we saw in the NFC Championship game, Devontae Adams is not enough, and Aaron Jones can't always be counted on against really good physical defenses like Tampa Bay, so they're going to need to go get some better, more playmakers. Uh, for Aaron Rodgers. Let's go to the NBA. Some second half predictions. Oh, gosh. I'm going to do my updated playoff predictions. Eastern Conference, beginning of the season, I had the Washington Wizards, Toronto Raptors, and the Pacers um, in the playoffs, and they're all not in right now. Uh, the Knicks are in, as well as the Hawks and the Hornets. So I got So, so far, I got five of the eight correct. You know, the Eastern Conference is kind of a crapshoot because a lot of the teams, you know, like are expected to be in the playoffs. You know, the Celtics, the Sixers, the Nets, uh, the Heat. Um, man, I'm forgetting what team. Anyway, the Bucs. Uh, the Knicks won't make it. Um, the Raptors will. You know, the Raptors have been basically, they've been COVID struck all year. You know, Fred Van Vliet and Siakam and OG Ananobi. They've all had COVID for multiple, for extended periods of time. Um, and despite that, they're only two and a half games out of the eight seed. I like the Knicks. They've been a great story. They're playing hard for, for Coach Thibodeau. Julius Randle has been a stat stuffer for them all year. Leads the team in assists, rebounds, steals, and points per game. Uh, he was a first-time first All-Star this year and well-deserved. Well the Knicks just don't have the guard play. Um, you know, they're one and three since the All-Star break. They won tonight against the Magic, so they're two and three. But, you know, they're not playing well against good teams, and they're beating the bad teams, which is what they should be doing. They're playing hard. And I think Tibbs will keep them in the conversation until May. But, you know, I don't really think they have enough. You know, Julius Randle, you know, does he have enough in the tank to get them to the finish line? R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly have played well. But are they going to be enough? I don't think they will. Um, the Hawks... I kind of thought we're a playoff team, but I wasn't sure, uh, as well as the Hornets. I was kind of on the fence with both of them. I wasn't really sure whether to pick them or the Wizards. The Wizards have been an extreme disappointment. I only picked them because you know, I knew that Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal were going to be amazing, as they have been, but they just don't have a good roster. And despite those two guys putting a mate, a great numbers every night, Russell Westbrook averaging nearly a triple-double, Bradley Beal averaging 30, they just don't have enough. They don't have enough. Um, you know, Bertans and, and Hachimura, you know, Mo Wagner, you know, like good, good role players, but they just don't have enough uh, to make the playoffs. But Russ, as long as Russell Westbrook and Beal keep playing like they are, they'll have a chance to maybe slide into the eighth seed, but 
Right now, they're just, they keep falling behind with some losses. Um, I've been impressed with LaMelo Ball, to be completely honest. I wasn't, I wasn't a fan of him coming out, but, you know, he's a playmaker. Um, he, he's by far the rook, runaway MVP, um, rookie, sorry, rookie of the year. And by the way, I'll just say he's my rookie of the year. I think it's kind of a one-man award at this point. You know, he's averaging 15 points, five rebounds, six assists, shooting 37% from three. And the Hornets are the five-seater right now. You know, Gordon Hayward's playing really well, averaging 20 points, five, rebound, five rebounds, four assists. Tara Rozier is averaging 20. P.J. Washington, Washington has been a good player for them on both sides of the court. Uh, so the Hornets have been impressive. Hawks, same thing. Trey Young averaging 26 points, nine assists. Uh, Clint Capella, John, John Collins anchoring the middle. The Hawks are, have won six in a row since firing Lloyd Pierce, so they, they seem to be gelling with Nate McMillan, the new interim coach. Um, so yeah, I was wrong. Pacers, I'm, I'm a little shocked. You know, they've been a playoff constant. While they haven't been a good playoff team, they've been a playoff constant. But you know, this year, they just don't seem to have the consistent offensive weapons outside of Sabonis and Malcolm Brogdon. And the Raptors have been COVID-struck. So I think the Raptors will bounce back and the Knicks will miss the playoffs. And in the West, the only team that I didn't pick to make it from the beginning of the season was the Spurs. And I just think, you know, it goes to show you, never count out Greg Popovich. He's always going to have his team in a playoff conversation. Um... I think the Warriors are just not going to have enough. I know Steph is playing unbelievable. But the rest of the roster, Draymond Green looks old. Kelly Oubre is not a good shooter. Uh, James Wiseman and Pascal are in the COVID protocols. James Wiseman's also played like a rookie, but he's also played well at times. Uh, yeah, I just don't – even if they do make the playoffs, the Warriors will likely get swept. They're losing five games. Uh, Yalka Pirtle and Deontay Murray are playing inspired ball right now along with DeMar DeRozan and Derek White. Uh, Pop's doing another amazing job. Now, I could see Memphis pushing for the 7 or the 8 seed when Jared Jackson comes back healthy. Um, and, and that, I think, will give them a, a, themselves a chance at the playing tournament. And, and keep an eye on the Pelicans. You know, they, they, they flashed some really great moments, but their defense has just been their downfall. As great as Zion's played this year and Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball's three-point shot looks a, mo- a lot better, they're just defensively, they just, it, it's costing them games. MVP, LeBron, can we, can we not mess around with this? Uh, he should have won it last year. He's missed one game all year. He's averaging 25.5 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists, and a steal. He's leading the team in all four categories. You know, they're 6-7 and seven in the tough Western Conference their last 13 games without AD. Um, and, and some of those losses, they had an 11-point loss to Brooklyn, a 2-point loss to Miami, a 3-point loss to the Wizards, where Bradley Beal had 33 and Russell Westbrook had a 32-point triple-double. They lost to a red-hot Suns team by 10. They lost to the Kings by three right before the All-Star break with no LeBron. I mean, come on. There, there's, and and, and let's, let's face facts again. You know, there are no runaway favorites this year in the MVP race. Joel Embiid's had multiple injuries and has missed you know, big uh, stretches of games. Nikola Jokic is having a great year. He's averaging 26 points, 11 rebounds, and 8 assists. But the Nuggets are the five seed as of now. Uh, once KD comes back for the Nets, Harden's numbers will likely take a dip despite playing amazing with KD out. And the Bucks, as good as Giannis is as usual, they're not as good of a team as they usually are. They're the three seed right now, and so that kind of takes Giannis out of the discussion. I think Damian Lillard needs to get more love in the conversation. Uh, he's been playing a big bulk of the season without CJ McCollum and Yusuf Nurkic. He's averaging 30 points and eight assists, um, and they're a four seed right now. And had it not been for Dame's 
Dame has had a lot of late game heroics against many teams. Uh, he's had a, a step back three against the Bulls to win on the road. He beat the Warriors with a big shot the other night. He put up 50 and a big, you know, 16 point come fourth quarter comeback against the Pelicans. He needs more love, but it has to be LeBron. He's been carrying the Lakers all year. He's definitely the most valuable. Uh, and they would not be a playoff team if him and Anthony Davis reversed roles and LeBron was hurt and Anthony Davis was not. I already mentioned LaMelo, so I won't even go into that. Defensive player of the year. I got to go with Ben Simmons. Uh, I, he's eighth in steals and defensive win shares. He leads the NBA in, in defensive uh, plus minus. And he anchors the Sixers perimeter defense, often takes the challenge of guarding the other team's best player if it's not a big man in crunch time. I think AD would be more in this conversation, but injuries will hurt his case. And I think it's going to come down between Rudy Gobert and Ben Simmons. Uh, Gobert is second in blocks, second best defensive rating, and second in defensive win shares. Uh, both the Sixers and the Jazz are in first place right now, so whoever finishes with the better record will likely have their uh, player win defensive player of the year. Now I'm going to talk about my last topic, March Madness. It's my favorite time of the year. I love the tournament. There's nothing like it. Uh, with that being said, my final four picks. I'm going to start with Illinois. They're, they're a deep team. They're one seed. Uh, they have two elite players inside and outside with Iodo Sumu and Kofi Coburn. Great guard play with many upperclassmen. Tim Frazier, Curbelo, a freshman guard, has flashed moments this year. They're a very physical and tough team. And they were the best team all year in the deepest conference, especially the last month and a half. They shoot 37% from three as a team, and they score over 80 points a game. They're great in transition and in the half court. Enough said. Ohio State's my second Big Ten team coming out of uh, the, uh, uh, the, mid the Midwest. Uh, Ohio State, another team with really good guard play. I would say the weakness of this team is they lack great interior defense, but in their, in their, in their region... The only team that really could give them problems size-wise is North Carolina, and they're an eight seed, and those teams would meet. If they did meet, it would be in the Elite Eight. So outside of, outside of North Carolina, I don't really see any team that could give them problems like Iowa did with Luca Garza and like Michigan did with Dickinson and uh, like uh, Illinois did with Cokeburn. Um, and they, again, another good three-point shooting team. They shoot 36% from three as a team. Dwayne Washington, EJ Liddell are matchup problems. Uh, with both having the ability to make tough ISO shots, finish around the rim. This is a team with another, a lot of upperclassmen. Uh, C.J. Walker, a transfer from Florida State. He's a physical playmaking guard. He's made deep tournament runs before when he was at Florida State. The X factor, I think, for Ohio State is Seth Towns. He's a grad transfer from Harvard. At Harvard, his two years starting. He shot 37% from three and 43% from three two years ago. He really hasn't played much this year. But during the Big Ten tournament, he averaged over 20 points a game. Uh, and he's another shooter for this team. He's 6'10". Um, he had four blocks and five rebounds against Michigan in the semifinal. He had 12 points in the overtime quarterfinal victory over Purdue. And he had four points and seven boards against Illinois and the conference final. I think he will be a huge X factor for Ohio State as they are not big in the, in the front court. Florida State is my other... Uh, as my third Final Four team, this is a deep team. They play nine. They go nine, ten deep. They shoot thirty-nine percent from three as a team. Uh, they got five to six guards led by MJ Walker, Scotty Barnes, and Anthony Polite that all average double double figures. Uh, they're very lengthy, and I do think they have enough in, uh, size in the post. The thing with Florida State's, they've had trouble with turnovers this year. They're averaging 
over 15 turnovers a game, especially in the ACC tournament against North Carolina and Georgia Tech. But the thing with Georgia Tech is they were the team that forced 20 turnovers or more in their three meetings in ACC conference play. Um, No team outside maybe Texas and their region will cause that kind of havoc with their athletic and uh, havoc-causing guards. Um, And so because of that, this is another team with upperclassmen and guards. Are you seeing a theme here? The teams that make the deepest tournament runs, generally speaking, have good post play, great guard play, and teams that can make threes and make free throws at a high level. All three of these teams do all three of those well. And last but not least, Gonzaga. They've been the best team on paper all year. They shoot 36% from three as a team. They got good inside-outside presence with Drew Timmy and Corey Kispert. Jalen Suggs is a top five uh, lottery pick in this upcoming draft. All three of those guys were first and second team All-Americans. They average 92 points per game as a team. They can score in a hurry and in bunches. Now, they only play seven guys, so they're not a deep team if someone gets hurt or someone gets into foul trouble, but they're very talented. Uh, Jalen Suggs reminds me a lot of a better offensive version of Rajon Rondo or a younger version of uh, Chris Paul. He's an excellent playmaker. He sees the floor very well and makes very precise passes, um, and he's an excellent shooter. I have Illinois over Gonzaga in the title game. I think it's going to come down to... Uh, post play. Uh, Cokeburn and Drew Timmy both shoot around 70% from the floor with two point field goals. So whoever wins that matchup will likely win that game if they were to meet. But at the end of the day, I think Gonzaga at times in past tournaments with this similar type of team, they struggle with physical play, especially Corey Kispert and Drew Timmy. Um, I do think that Jalen Suggs will be the X factor for them throughout the tournament. He's such a great guard at driving and shooting and creating. Especially and, and on the defensive end of the floor, he sets a tone. But I think Iodo Sumu and Coburn are on a mission. The very physical team, they play great, and they, they handled a lot of adversity playing in the toughest conference, deepest conference all year in the Big Ten. So I'll give the edge to Illinois. Some quick upset picks. Uh, I got 12 seed UC Santa Barbara over Creighton, the five seed. Um, since head coach Greg McDermott made some comments, um, that really rubbed a lot of his players the wrong way. Creighton has really lacked focus and intensity the last couple weeks of the season, and they struggle with physical teams, which Santa Barbara is, leading me to pick them for the upset. Uh, I have Ohio to the Sweet 16. Uh, Jason Preston's an unbelievable player. He's averaging 16 points, 6 rebounds, and 7 assists, and he's shooting 40% from 3. And uh, Dwight Wilson, their big man, shooting over 67% from the field. As a team, they shoot 36% from three and score over 80 points a game. I don't think Virginia, uh, defensively, they haven't looked the same as they have in years past. Uh, They really struggle with dribble drivers and stopping guards off the dribble. Um, I think because of that, they're going to really struggle in this game uh, with Jason Preston. And again, they're coming off a COVID pause. They really haven't had time to practice. So I think that'll hurt them as well. While they did play well in ACC play, they struggled with teams that had really good guards. And uh, Duke, they struggled against Duke and DJ Stewart and and Jeremy Roach on dribble drives. And they struggled with Florida State. So I think we're going to see a reoccurring theme here with Ohio. And I think Ohio will be able to knock off Santa Barbara with a better offense. I also have uh, Georgetown and uh, Winthrop over Villanova in Colorado. I'm not a fan of the Pac-12. And I, didn't re- I wasn't really impressed with how Colorado played in the Pac-12 tournament. And um, Georgetown's on fire for the Big East tournament. Their guards are playing well. They have a great big man, Ahmad. Um, I just don't think that uh, Colorado's going to be able to match him inside. And uh, I think Patrick Ewing will get his squad up ready 
for a, a, at least one win in the tournament. And Nova, Villanova is not lost. They have lost Colin Gillespie, the leader, the, um, the floor general for their team. They have not looked the same or since then, and they haven't really looked in sync. And Winthrop's only lost one game all year. My biggest upset of the tournament, eight-seed LSU over one-seed Michigan. LSU's defense has been improving the last five, six games. They have four guys that can score, go for 20 in a game, led by freshman Cameron Thomas. He's top five in the nation in points per game as a freshman. And Michigan, they have not looked the same since playing Illinois. I just think they just have lost a little bit of their mojo, and they lost their leader, senior Isaiah Livers, their glue guy, maybe their most important offensive piece outside of freshman big man Hunter Dickinson. I think that's going to hurt Michigan, and I, I, I'm, gonna, I pick, I'm picking LSU to get to the Sweet 16. Well, there you have it, folks. That's my March Madness upset picks, predictions, uh, free agency takes, contract takes. Um, if you like what you heard, share with your friends. I'm going to look to have an episode up in the next couple weeks. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Corey Grip. Have a great night.